another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing welcome to another episode of and another thing the podcast that continues to set the bar in the world of podcasts. My name is Jody Jenkins. And I'm Tony Clement. As always, this program is proudly brought to you by the good folks at Municipal Solutions. John Mutton and the team there, supporters since day one. You can find out more by going to municipalsolutions.ca. And of course, Tony is going to share some nuggets on what they do right now. Yes, I'd be very happy to, Jody. Uh, John Mutton and the gang at Municipal Solutions have been one of our uh, earliest sponsors, and they have been with us pretty well every step of the way. So we really thank the fact that they are our presenting sponsor today, and they offer development services and project management, Jody. They offer development approval and permit expediting services, planning services with municipalities, engineering services, architectural services. If you have a minor variance issue or a land severance issue, they're there for you. And of course, they're there for building permits. Go to municipalsolutions.ca. And then our friend Trevor Townsend, he's a senior vice president of investment and an investment advisor at Canaccord Genuity Corporation. And for the past 25 years, Trevor has successfully built an investment advisory practice. He provides counsel to affluent investors and private uh, corporations in the public markets. He has strategic investment planning and wealth management for business owners, executives, and management professionals for retirees, for affluent investors, and he provides Jody a holistic uh, approach to his advice. And you visit Trevor at trevortownsend.ca. And finally, we should also want to thank Stephen J. Sparling at Halton GR. He is a municipal lobbyist representing the development industry clients in the GTA West, such as Etobicoke, Mississauga, and Oakville. You can find Stephen at haltongr.com. I just noticed, like, this show is completely run by lobbyists. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, we, we are totally on the take here. Well, we had we had tech firms before and other things going on, but right now it's the lobbyists who really want to make sure our audience knows that they exist. Uh, also, don't forget, <laughs> loonypolitics.com. Uh, we have uh, exclusive content there that you can only get by being a subscriber. Uh, Robert Woods and the team there do an amazing job with their aggregate news sources. Um, So you can use the code podcast to get 50% off an annual subscription. Once again, loonypolitics.com. You'll hear shows from our program that you cannot hear anywhere else. Podcast is the code. Go there after the show, become a subscriber, and uh, you'll be a better person for it. Okay, let's get to our guests because I'm excited uh, for this one. I've been waiting patiently for the last couple days because I knew that this gentleman was coming on, and I, I think we're going to have a have a fun show. I have a feeling, mm. just a guess. I have a feeling, yes. depending on where this show goes when it's produced and shared and whatever. I think this could be one of our bigger shows. Just I a think guess. so too. I, it could be so big that we're banned from YouTube. 
That's how big it's going to be. Not I don't know, you really know you hit the big leagues. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, introduce our guest there, Tony. Yes, I'd be very happy to, Jody. Anthony Fury is a national columnist for Sun Newspaper Chain. He has also appeared on talk radio and also in his time on the BBC, on Fox News and other shows. He is an author. He is a commentator. Please welcome Anthony Fury. Anthony? Hey, guys. Jody, Tony, great to be here. It's great to have you here, man. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's great. Uh, we've had uh, some other uh, folks that you know, like Brian Lilly, on the program in the past, and uh, it's great to have you as a friend of the show as well. Yeah, great to be here. L- let's get you banned from YouTube. Let's see what we can do, gentlemen. Yeah, let's see what we can do. We want to be in the Joe Rogan territory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what we're aiming for, buddy. Uh, Listen, uh, the reason you came to mind, obviously, is because of our present situation uh, nationally. But of course, uh, we all, the three of us on this call uh, reside in Ontario and we're back to COVID restrictions. We're back to this this nether world of uh, wanting to live our lives, but also living under the threat of COVID. And I know you've written extensively about it and particularly about these lockdowns and uh, about trying to actually, I, I'm going to frame it my way, and then I'd love to get your commentary on this, but you're, you're, you know, everybody's talking about following the science and following the data and following the facts. And uh, what you've really pressed for is trying to better understand, like if, if our hospitals are being overwhelmed, what are the actual numbers in ICU? What are the actual numbers of hospitalization? You know, how do we assess risk better as human beings? And I'd love you to to go through that first of all. Yeah, for sure. Well, how I've approached all of my reporting and, and column work on COVID is I, I had assumed that the starting point should be how can we get the nuanced and contextualized information that allows us to push forward, to move forward, to maximize freedoms, maximize living, of course, do what we got to do to take care of the most vulnerable. If people get sick, how can we uh, best care for them? But still to to power forward and basically assume that no restriction should be in place unless you can prove every single hour of the day, yes, it must remain in place. The default should not be that things are in place. But it's pretty lamentable that I think the past couple of weeks uh, we've seen governments decide, well, no, the default is going to be to lock things down. And that's what I found really kind of troublesome about the past couple of weeks. And you're right about the hospital numbers. There's there's a lot of nuance going on to unpack all of that. Uh, you know, it was over a year ago that Patty Hadju, she was health minister, then she rose in the House of Commons to denounce some of my work as, as fake news and dangerous misinformation. And that was when I was writing on how Alberta was the only government, the only province to report on comorbidity data. And they had mm-hmm. found that um, at the time, it was something like 78% of persons who had died of COVID-19 were suffering from three or more underlying conditions at the time. And it was like, wow, maybe we can use this information to kind of uh, better you know, target those people, help them protect them, and also liberate the people who are not in that category. But man, there was so much hostility to just doing that, that reporting, that journalism, and, and the hostility, it was regular people on social media or right there in the House of Commons. So it was, it's, it's been quite something to watch people's response to, uh, to getting information out there. Why do you think that they reacted that way? What, what is the thing, uh, you know, other than they're being, you know, disingenuous or misinformed, I mean, wh- why do you think they react the way they are reacting? Yeah, there's a lot of politics at play and, and a lot of political identity 
Uh, one left-wing doctor remarked to me pretty early on in all of this. She said, oh, I wish Donald Trump had said he supported lockdowns because then that would be so much easier because then everybody uh, who who automatically define themselves by doing the opposite of Trump or what have you, the opposite of Doug Ford or, you know, that sort of attitude towards policy, then those people would have been liberated and wouldn't have had to hunker down and, and be so sort of ideologically committed to lockdowns for such a long time. So I, I think maybe there's a bit of that going on. I mean, now just two years into this, it's, it's been habit forming. I think it's been psychologically damaging that, that people really kind of hunker down. They have their positions, there's, there's camps and there's sides. And that's, that's too bad because that really shouldn't be for something like this. Yeah. And it, it, it really, uh, I'm just going to hearken back to my time as health minister during SARS in 2002 and 2003. And it really wasn't a political issue. I mean, though, maybe those are times long gone, but, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we had all political parties and all media and, and everybody sort of working together. Now it wasn't as right. long a period. It was like for a four month period, we had to endure it rather than what we were in year three, as you remarked. But, uh, it just seemed that, uh, uh, there, there are, you know, different sides on the science and, and, and to me, that's okay. Like you, you should be able to question things, right. but I, I, you know, I, I, I just get the opinion, I guess I get the impression rather that some people, if, if, if their goal is to, to get as many people vaccinated as pro- possible, anything that derogates from that, even if it's scientifically valid, they don't want to see in the media. They don't want to ha- have people talk about. So that's where this whole issue got with comorbidities, right? Like they want the maximum number of people in the hospital with COVID, not not necessarily in hospital for other things and they happen to have COVID because that would reduce the scariness of it, I guess. Is that, is that what you're worried about as well? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a good point. Like the messaging early on was let's be very blunt about this, that, you know, anybody can get COVID at any time, anyone can die from it, you got to take this seriously, because they wanted people to acknowledge that this was a serious issue, and please follow the protocols. They didn't want people to think, oh, they're exempt and go do reckless things. And and I get all of that. But as people really, you know, got in the game, and, and, and Joe Public really wanted to follow the granular details, I, I think it was fine to start treating people like adults, and for us to talk about it in a much more nuanced way. But public health messaging could never get beyond that. No, we're going to have this sort of one very blunt uh, assessment and it's going to apply exactly the same to everyone. And I think that's where a lot of the disconnect has come from. Now, uh, I do, I do, Jody, you wanted to mention the schools just for a second. Maybe this is a good time to talk about that. Yeah, I don't know what you're hearing, Anthony, but apparently it's been confirmed that kids will be back in on the 17th of January. Well, I heard that, but I also heard they were going to be back uh, very soon before that. And we were heard, we were told with a great enthusiasm at a Thursday press conference it would happen. And then just a few days later, we were told we were in lockdown. So, yes, I'm hearing yeah. that. But I think we got to keep, we got to say, I'll believe it when I see it. And we got to keep pushing them to, to stick to it. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting balancing act. I wanted to go just further on to what Tony was just talking about. Um, the nuances of hospitalizations and digging deeper into the numbers. Right. And I also wanted to bring up a, what you were talking about with messaging and maybe just get you to comment. Do you, do you feel that the messaging and the narrative are crumbling to a certain degree? And are, are you getting the sense that even people that are 
uh, have done what they're supposed to do, i.e. getting getting their double vaccination or getting boosters, now even starting to question it more and more. I know in my circles, my friends are, and those are individuals that are boosted and everything, but they're really starting to say, hmm, something's not adding up. Do you, do you see that narrative crumbling? Oh, totally. Regular folks and, you know, people I know who were much more supportive of all of this. I've been pretty critical of a lot of this stuff, but a lot of people I know who were okay with everything, they're really getting frustrated now. I mean, to your point, people did their thing. Uh, they, they got their vaccines. I saw this tweet from Justin Trudeau. It was really something the other day. He said, okay, everybody, this is what you got to do. Get your booster and then we can go back to normal. And you're like, come on. Like you <laughs> yeah. think people are supposed to believe that? Cause I can show you your tweet from however many months ago. Oh, just get your first shot. Oh, just get your second shot. Then you can go back to normal. And I think people are finally saying, no, the goalposts, they've just been removed so far. You're not even in the stadium anymore. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, one thing I was going to say, and I mentioned this to Tony last week when Trudeau had that um, had his presser there, and I, I've been critical of of all party leaders, so this isn't completely focused on Trudeau, or this one is, but it's not that I just only focus on him. But one comment he made during that presser, if you recall, was he said, you know, he, he turned his voice down a bit, and he said that to, to the effect of, I know we can get through this, we've done it before, but I'm asking you to hunker down for a couple more months. So we can have a good spring. <laughs> and honestly, I said to Tony, I said, to, I've never been more pissed off. I have three kids at home doing the online learning, you know, doing everything we're supposed to be doing. And I'm sitting there going, this has been going on for two years. And you're going to tell me that we have to hunker down for a couple more months. Like that doesn't work anymore. And I'd be curious to know, do they think that those, like, is there a certain, obviously there's a certain section of the population that loves to hear that it coddles them, makes them feel better. But I got to believe that that message doesn't resonate with as many people as it might have a year and a half ago. Am I right? Yeah, yeah every time they're losing more people. I mean, there's always been moments where I thought, oh, this would be it, where, where they'd lose a lot of people. And surprisingly, no, a lot more stick around. But I think now it really is at a breaking point. I think one of the big things that's doing it is Omicron is just so transmissible that like everybody's getting it. Like there, you know, for months you could say, oh, what's, I, I don't know anybody who's had this COVID thing. People have been, people were saying that early on for quite some time. Now it's like, no, we all know, like people are texting us left, right, and center neighbors, coworkers, family members, friends are all like, I tested positive, I tested positive. And then you're all like, well, how is it? And they're like, it's actually kind of really mild. It's kind of like the cold. So you acknowledge that there are unfortunately uh, a fair amount of people who are going into the hospital with it. You wish them well, and you wish it wasn't happening to them. And, you know, let's do what we can to support those people. But you also know there are just so many people that you know, so many who are getting this mild. And you're like, do we shut society down over this? I mean, the latest Public Health Ontario report says a 0.3% hospitalization rate. And that, right. that's just off of the cases they've identified. There's like people who do it on rapid tests don't get into the uh, the data pool anymore the way it works. So it's probably lower than that. And you're like, do we lock down over 99.7% uh, when those people are perfectly fine? Yeah, no, and, and that's, I, I agree with you. I was, t I was telling Jody off air, I was on a uh, on a business call earlier today, a Zoom call. Uh, there were six people on the call, uh, including myself, and of the other five, three out of the five had either just gotten over COVID or who had COVID while being on the call. Right. And, uh, you know, so one had 
headache symptoms and, you know, severe sinus congestion. The rest was like a mild cough and a mild cold. So, you know, human beings are like that. They, they, they will absorb the data, but they'll also take a look around. And, uh, you know, and it's what they're experiencing or what family or friends are experiencing that animate their, their conclusion, because we're all, we're all, uh, as, as a species, we, we try to identify risk and, and assess it. And sometimes we're really good at it. Sometimes we're really bad at it. I'm not saying we're always amazing at it, but you, you, you naturally just take a look around like, yeah, you read, uh, the information that comes through and the daily announcements, but you're saying, well, my neighbor had it and it wasn't too bad. And, and, uh, and Bessie had it and she was okay. And, you know, all, all this sort of goes into the mix. Right. And I think we've got a lot more data that, you know, personally now than we had before. Yeah, for sure. Like the things that really scared me originally back during the first wave, I was reading these pandemic preparedness plans on all levels of government. Tony, you may have played a role in, in you know, when governments yeah. are drafting those. And I, I specifically remember um, talking about how in, in serious pandemics, um, arenas are used as temporary morgues. That was part of the plan. And I live across the street from an arena. And those images were, were what was horrifying me, you know, before, right, like right when we went into lockdown beforehand, because we didn't know. We had no clue how bad this would be. And there really were some some very, you know, dreadful fears. I mean, right now, some of the people I know who are most saying the lockdowns aren't needed are doctors who are in hospital treating COVID patients because they're really getting a sense of, of just you know, how severe it is and who the actual people are they're treating. Those were the people who back during uh, the first lockdown and before they had a sense, those were the people who were afraid of their lives. So they were very much afraid. Now they have, to your point, the experiential data a year and a half later, and they're saying, no, we don't need to do these lockdowns anymore. That's very interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic playbook. And I know you've, you've written about this because uh, uh, you're right. As, as federal health minister, I, I, published. And I think Teresa Tam was a sort of a junior employee at the time who helped me on it and helped uh, the uh, public health uh, agency create the first uh, pandemic plan for the country. And uh, you're, you're right. I, I don't, I don't recall saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to lock down everything. <laughs> that wasn't part of the plan at all. It was how, how, do you, how do you keep society going while you have a pandemic that was the nature of it right yeah they're they're interesting plans to read them they're all about maximizing still activity and acknowledging we're going to have absenteeism because people are going to be home sick or they're going to be caring for loved ones who are sick and they do talk about school closures but only because it was assumed that the elderly and children would be the ones uh, hardest hit but we've learned thankfully covid does not hit kids all that severely so it's the total opposite. And in one of those, in the 2018 plan, the updated one, um, they talk about the need to be concerned about psychosocial damages. And there's been total neglect of that. You know, we're all about maximizing the mental health harms, maximizing the economic damage, the family turmoil. Like it's, it's crazy. So kudos to you for working on those plans and shame on everybody for throwing them out the window. I'd like to uh, just talk about another aspect, and uh, a, a friend of the show, Patrick Brown, has uh, has been quite outspoken about this recently, uh, which is, uh, you know, the fact that our ICU and surge capacity in our hospitals is not where it should be. And, uh, you know, I think 
uh, I don't I don't want to lay this on on the on the feet of Doug Ford. I think he inherited a system that uh, didn't really incorporate a lot of the lessons from SARS 1.0 and and deal with ICU surge capacity, those kinds of issues. And I'm told, or Patrick has said, uh, that uh, our ICU uh, beds are sort of the lowest proportionally in North America. And we've had two years now of this. So is this is this part of the problem too? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll defer to you on the particulars of, of how one manages uh, the civil service and, and senior healthcare bureaucrats, but I just look at it at, look, there's been two years of this. We have thrown hundreds of billions of dollars at COVID when you add sort of all levels of government together. And you're telling me we're locking down for healthcare capacity reasons. And when they announced the lockdown in Ontario, it was because of 300 people in ICUs. Now we're at just over 400. And you're saying, you know, we got a promise of 14 million people that is enough to send us into lockdown. And when the bureaucrats, a couple of the bureaucrats were at that press conference, they went up to the podium. I'm like, this this is you guys admitting defeat, failure, a lack of creativity, a lack of innovation. I mean, at a certain point when they say, you know, oh, we have 400 people in beds, I think it's the job of the public to turn around and go, and what are you going to do about it? You guys are paid 500 grand to do these jobs, these senior healthcare admin jobs to protect the hospitals. Don't turn around and say, my kid has to protect the hospitals. It's not my kid's job. That's your job. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it's so bizarre because, you know, when I, I've said this for months now, uh, Jody knows I've been a broken record, but, you know, the cost of working on surge capacity, and I know you can't wave a magic wand and there's a, there's a doctor and there's a nurse and whatnot, but okay, it's two years. How much would it cost to get a brand new ICU unit in a community, even if it's a billion dollars, even if it's $5 billion, Anthony, compare that to the cost of lockdowns. There's no comparison. And uh, this is the thing that I just don't understand, like, you know, why there wouldn't be a Skunk Works unit somewhere in the Ontario government or the Canadian government somewhere. By Skunk Works, I mean just, you know, off the grid, working on crazy solutions, you know, this kind of thing, right? Why not? Uh, You know, we're in year three now. Uh, Shouldn't we be having somebody somewhere thinking outside the box is what I'm wondering. Uh, One thing that, that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on is I've certainly heard from a few people that say, we kind of diverged by putting the health bureaucrats primarily in charge because we've got emergency management departments, EMO, Emergency Management Ontario, they've got in Alberta, they've got in every province. And, and you actually go to their website and it says they're responsible for you know forest fires, terrorist attacks, nuclear accident, pandemics. And the emergency managers are the, the top people. And then obviously health is super important because a pandemic is a health issue, but emergency management still manages because you have to coordinate between all these different concerns, economy, education, manufacturing, et cetera. And here we've just had the health people who are singularly focused on, you know, the primary job of society is, is, is to be concerned about the minutia of, of, of hospital capacity numbers. And I feel like, I, I don't know, could we get a bit more of a balance there? You know, when you mentioned, you, I think you mentioned that in, in one of your uh, columns and it really was a ding, ding, ding bell moment for me because when when I was dealing with SARS as the Ontario Minister of Health, we had the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Colin DeCuna, 
Uh, but we also had the head of emergency management Ontario ah. at every briefing. Uh, he he was a, a former chief coroner, so he was a medical doctor too. But he was head of emergency management, and you're I, you know when you said that, I thought, oh my God, you're absolutely right because uh, it wasn't uh, he wasn't above uh, the medical officer of health, but they were kind of fused at the hip. And they, they, they made decisions to, together with me uh, and, you know, made proposals to, to, to cabinet with me, et cetera. And we, we, we haven't had that in this situation. And yeah, emergency management was very much part of the SARS response back in 2003. And I don't know where that went. I honestly don't. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So I assume the emergency management person would have brought up things in the meetings that were not, you know, solely hospital focused, like it was yeah. some broader society things. Broader society or just more whole of society response, right? Right. So medical officer of health, yes, hospitals and, uh, you know, uh, and uh, obviously the the individual uh, public health officers would flow through the chief medical officer of health. But yeah, emergency management, Ontario, much broader picture uh, and definitely part of the decision-making. So we've kind of lost that somewhere. I'm not sure why that happened, uh, whether that was a conscious decision or whether emergency management didn't stick their hand up at the first meeting and said, hey, we're supposed to be part of this. Right. But it, it, it just never happened. And uh, I, I don't understand that. And there... There is a federal counterpart on that front too. Uh, be, you know, the um, the public safety minister is in charge of these kinds of emergencies as well, federally. Uh, and it's uh, again, you never. I, I guess it's Bill Blair. Is it still Bill Blair? It used to be anyway before the election. And you do, you don't hear a peep from them now. It's it's all it's all public health. So um, I know we're getting into the weeds for our audience, but it it just it, it is a question mark as to why it was managed this way. So uh, what's your prediction? Are we gonna uh, we gonna have a better summer, or what's gonna what's gonna happen? Well, you know, like I said, because Omicron is just so rampant, everybody's getting, if not firsthand, secondhand experience with it. You've got to think there's got to be a push for, uh, for a different response, a different approach. Then again, I, I worry because, you know, this is an endemic illness and there's going to be some degree of, of hospitalization and ICU beds for COVID uh, for, you know, the rest of our natural lives that you're just kind of needing to scale up the system anyway. And are we going to hear every winter Oh, we have too many people with COVID. Therefore, you know, therefore what school closures every single year. It's yeah. like, come on. I, I've spoken to a number of doctors who, who refer back to the ways who would have worked on the front lines of the AIDS crisis. And, and they use that as a reference point to talk about some things now. And it's like, there, there was an acute period where, uh, there were a lot of people with AIDS who were getting into the hospital. Eventually, we built those AIDS hospices, and we just built entire other facilities uh, to help these people. Thankfully, I know those numbers have gone down a bit with retroviral drugs, and, and it's a different landscape. But at a certain point, they just had to scale up. There, there wasn't AIDS, then there was AIDS. There, there was a pre-COVID time, now there is COVID. Right. And there's no COVID zero. So, you know, 12 months from now, 24 months from now, you're going to have COVID people in hospital. How are we going to deal with that? Yeah, and the the common cold is uh, just an amalgam of past pandemics. 
it's a, a bunch of different coronaviruses and flu viruses that have sort of part of the background now. They're the background wallpaper. That's what the common cold is. So that's yeah. what COVID is. Yeah. Good point. I mean, how do you think the healthcare system is going to kind of internalize this moving ahead? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think at some point, uh, you know, somebody's going to some politician is going to stick their head up over the turret and say, you know what, this ain't going anywhere. Uh, we're going to have to deal with it. Obviously, we want people, we want to protect people who are at highest at risk, but the rest of society is going to have to move on. I think somebody's going to have to declare that at some point. And right. I, I think Jason Kenney tried to do that uh, like a half a year ago, and it was just a little bit too soon, and he got whacked for it. And that right. scared every other politician back, you know, into the foxhole again. But I, I think we do, we do need that at some point because we can't, I call it the whack-a-mole of lockdowns. It's just, you can't have a, a, a properly function, functioning society this way. Yeah. So true. Jody. Well, I don't know if we've discussed anything that uh, will get us banned from YouTube. So we better bring up <laughs> Dr. Robert Malone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anthony, I did want to ask, quickly because I, I know we want to honor your time but how do we walk back or can we walk back what has happened with I guess the relational dynamic and how people treat each other i.e we've seen a lot of people a lot of families be you know I'm going to say scarred and, and, and hurt by yeah. through all this I mean I know of families this past Christmas and I'm sure we all do that uh, you know one family's fully vaxxed the other family's fully vaxxed but still didn't feel comfortable eating together or getting together, you know, restrictions yeah. aside, these are just, but how do we get back? Do you see a, a path back to people actually coming together or is this rift going to be around for a while? Oh, I hope so. It's, it's so divisive and I don't just mean vaccine or not vaccine, but whether or not you thought this protocol or that protocol was necessary. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, if we thought like, pro-Trump, anti-Trump was a divisive thing. I think this is kind of worse for society. And it's sad, you know, hearing about family not seeing each other, people, you know, friends have been damaged by it and 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 so much. It's it's gotta be a priority for sure. But how we how we kind of heal those wounds, it's it's a problem. I'm 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 worried about that, the long-term psychological effects. It's funny, and we don't even have a it's interesting that I like that line about healing these wounds you'd think that our prime minister would actually be talking about that. Again, here's another shot at Trudeau, but like he's doing the exact opposite. The opposite, I, I, you know, sure. I'd like to say that, you know, I'd like to see Aaron's doing it to a certain degree, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the, the conservatives, but I would love for someone to stand up and say, like, we need to start healing these wounds because it has to happen, but uh, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting year to come. We need someone like Tony to, take up that torch and heal our wounds, Tony. I've got my own wounds to heal, baby. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jody. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, listen, Anthony, it's been great having you on the program. Thank you very much for taking your time uh, to just to, uh, if not anything else, it was for great therapy for Jody and I, and hopefully some of our listeners got something uh, great out of it because uh, I think you've got some very wise words there. So thank you for all of this. Oh, thanks so much. Great conversation, guys. Now that, that's a show right there, Tony. That is that's a show. show. Yeah. You know, I, I like talking about that stuff. 
Yeah, I know you do. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it in our banter and so on. So I thought, you know, let's get a guy who's been writing about it a lot. Uh, you know, when we've had Brian Lilly on the show before, Anthony had a very interesting perspective. So I'm glad we had him on. And things have really shifted in reporting, too. I don't know what it's like yeah. in your health region. I noticed uh, very recently with our public health unit uh, being Hastings Prince Edward, they no longer report cases, straight cases. Oh, uh, and obviously because testing has dropped oh, yeah. the ability to get tested. But all they report now are cases from high-risk settings, i.e. Uh, long-term care, uh, retirement residences, congregate living areas. So it's it's... You know, I think what's going to happen now is people aren't going to be checking the numbers every day because it doesn't paint a picture at all as to what could or could not be going on out there. Well, that's it. And I, th- I think, you know, and, and and we've talked about this before, how the, the just focusing in on the cases, remember this a few, from a few months ago, it doesn't get, you know, I kept saying, I don't care about the cases, I care about ICU. And uh, I think finally we're around to that point now uh, as a former friend of the show, Patrick Brown has said, it's not just the ICU, but how many you're in because of COVID, not with COVID, but because of other yeah. reasons. And it's, and it's like you said, those nuanced, um, uh, pieces of the message. I'll give you another example that kind of annoyed me the other day. Um, someone from our local health, uh, authority made the comment about deaths in our region. And obviously, you know, we, we feel ter- I feel terrible about anyone that died from this. But their comment was, you know, unfortunately, uh, with these, I think it was like 22 deaths, with these 22 deaths, 19 of the 22 were not vaccinated. And I'm like, well, well, hold up a second. Because like 10 or 11 of them were before there was even a vaccine. So yeah. You, can't, right. you know, Good you point. can't really, but they, but people hear that. And what do they hear? They hear 19 people died that weren't vaccinated. Well, that's not really accurate. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. again, I'm not saying don't get vaccinated. I'm just saying those nuances make a difference. Yeah. And I think if you want it, if you want, and I do, uh, in my case, I do want people to be vaccinated. I think that's a, that's a good societal good, but this whole thing about treating the unvaccinated as pariahs and the prime minister saying that they're misogynistic and racist, how that's going to improve our vaccination score. I don't, I don't understand the logic of that there, you know, so anyway, but uh, uh, I think we've made that point, but uh, listen, uh, this ain't going away. Uh, We haven't really done a show about COVID for a good while. We've talked about other issues and, you know, obviously reference COVID. So I think that this was a good show just to see where we are. And uh, hopefully there's good news around the corner with schools uh, coming back. And, uh, and that could be the start of a turnaround. I, I always reference how things are in the United Kingdom, Jody, because they're, I think they're three or four weeks ahead of us on, on all these curves and uh, their cases are coming down. Their hospitalizations are coming down. They didn't do a lockdown uh, and uh, they have no intention of doing a lockdown in the future. So hopefully that's our future as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks what it looks like. And again, I go back to even that news that we discussed during the show with Anthony about the schools apparently going to be back in on January the 17th um, seems to be confirmed. I've seen a couple news outlets uh, that have confirmed it. So again, but anything, as you know, uh, subject to change. Yeah. But I, I would love for them to stick to it on that one. But again, my question is, will they stand up to or won't wait or will they not waver in the in the light of there's going to be some vocal pushback 
even on the 17th, right? Like if they stick to that. So, you know, I, I don't know. This government hasn't shown me that they have much resolve, if you ask me. Yeah, but so. the medical officer of health, I, you know, I think he was pretty clear that uh, he wanted the kids back. It's, I guess the issue is uh, because of Omicron, people or teachers might not be able to go into the classroom and so on. So there'll be, there'll be some disruption. But I think, I think the point of the government should be all things being equal, people should be back at school. Now, there may be cases where the kids have the virus or the teachers have the virus. Yeah, I get that, but you don't shut down the whole school system because of that. Look, I'm not a doctor, but I do play one on TV. But are we at a point where, depending on the severity of your symptoms, you go back to work and you do your job? And that's that's not to take anything away from people that have had severe outcomes, but... Look, Tony, am I, tell me if I'm way off here. There are people that if they contracted the flu, they would they could have severe outcomes. Is that not correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's not dismissing the severity of COVID. That's not, listen to what I am saying, not to what I'm not saying. Yeah. That's the reality. And yet there are people every year, every day of the week that go into work, well, sorry, prior to this, with, with flu, flu symptoms. See, I feel like crap, but I'm in here today, right? And nobody bats an eye. Yeah, sure, I think- I think that's going to change, though. I, I don't think that's going to be the norm. I think people will genuinely try, and uh, you know, and and we need proper policies that will encourage people to take sick leave when they when they are sick. I agree. I agree. But what I'm saying, though, is if we are in that much of a crunch when it comes to people at the, you know, whether it's absenteeism, whether it's a short staff, or whether you can't find employees, like, are we at a point right now to be able to make it work that we allow people to get back to work? symptoms or with symptoms or not that's that's what i'm asking yeah, i agree with you i think that masking and all that stuff is probably with us and 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 there will probably be less less sickness in the workplace moving forward i have no doubt but it's like I don't know. I just have questions about that. That's all. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And, and of course, uh, if you're asymptomatic, you may not even know that you have COVID. Uh, well, you because... could be at work. You can, there could, I, and I'm pretty sure there's probably lots of asymptomatic people that were, uh, that were at work today. Yeah, right? so, exactly. And, anyway, and, and, uh... and usually the outcome now is if you have Omicron COVID, uh, it's no big deal. So the, the impact is not the same as w- with Delta, et cetera. So, yeah, no, I think there'll be some changes, uh, in attitudes and, um, you know, we're, uh, I fully expect to get Omicron COVID at some point. Um, and, uh, my vaccination status will help me with that, uh, because I have some comorbidities as they say, but, uh, but, uh, at the, at the end of the day, uh, I, <laughs> I am almost at the point of wanting to get it over with. Hope that's not uh, tempting fate, but that's how I feel. The other thing I was going to say too, and I put this out on my Facebook and got some good reaction because I was I was getting a little bit livid a, a couple of days ago about the whole uh, kids being out of school. Was how many ministers around that cabinet table, not caucus, but around the cabinet table to make the decisions, have young children at home for online learning? Right, I'd love to know that. I'm not saying I I know that there are some, but it'd be interesting to see how many of them actually have kids in public school. Um, at home, young kids. Yeah, interesting, eh? Yeah, I thought you. I thought you were going the other many. route. I thought you were going the other route and saying how many of Ka- Matt Cavanaugh's around the table have had COVID. I thought that's where you were going. Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> I just want. I mean, because honestly, I, I look at it like, no offense to David Pacini, great guy, but he's a minister around the table. The guy doesn't even have any kids. Yeah, have any kids, and he's making decisions about our schools. Like, 
I, I, I just can't buy into that because well, you know what's going to happen. 15 years down the road when he has a couple kids at home, he'd be like, good Lord, maybe I shouldn't have made these decisions when I was around that table. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Trust me. We're going to have uh, David Pacini's children on the podcast 15 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Uh, thanks again to the team at Municipal Solutions for their continued support. Uh, you can find them online at municipalsolutions.ca as well. Go to looneypolitics.com. Use the code podcast to get 50% off your annual subscription where you can hear exclusive shows on looneypolitics.com. And Tony, I know you want to thank some of our other friends. Yes, Trevor Townsend, who is not a lobbyist, Joni. I want to make that point oh, clear. Okay. Uh, he's a senior vice president and an investment advisor at Canaccord Genuity Corporation for his excellent advice. Visit trevortownsend.ca. And then our friend Stephen J. Sparling at haltongr.com. Uh, he's a municipal lobbyist in the development industry in uh, GTA West. And he, as I say, visit him at haltongr.com. Don't forget to go to andanotherthingpodcast.ca to listen to back episodes. You can also go to zekeagency.com and get coffee mugs and other merch. Yes, the mugs are thing. here. Yep, the mugs are here. You can get those. You can also get your young Tony sweaters, <laughs> which we sold a couple. You know, Do you know anything about that? I do. I do. I'm helping the people that con- contacted me. So I, I actually ordered on their behalf. to. You, you need to w- reach out to John Mutton because he wanted a 2XL. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. So ask him. Maybe we can get it to him, shipped to him quicker. Okay, but, uh, yeah. okay. We'll get you need to confirm him. Excel for John Mutton. Yeah, confirm that with him. And I know that yours, I saw the shipping info just came out. I think it'll be there the week of the, the last week of January, I think. Okay. So it's, it's, it has gone out, so it'll be. Very exciting to get the Young Tony hoodies. And uh, I will be ordering some coffee mugs as well for uh, <laughs> friends and family. So uh, let, let's join in that. We got to the next the next ten Christmases planned <laughs> yeah. out, no problems. Okay. All right, Tony, always a pleasure, and we'll do this again in seven days. You betcha.